It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I don't have a horse that needs deworming, so I uh, don't need to worry about the fact that uh, the uh, lunatic fringe seems to have uh, bought out all of the uh, horse deworming medication as a defense to COVID. So, you know, I can't complain. I'm waiting for the inevitable news story of the poor horse that's riddled with parasites and cannot get the medical treatment it needs because all the dewormer on the island is sold out. I'm still waiting for that to happen and hopefully we avoid it. Yes, people. Think of the horses. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, we talk about things being constitutional, being unconstitutional. Generally, when folks say that, what they're talking about is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In my experience, it's in the American discourse as well. But here in Canada, we generally refer to the Charter. What does the law say about things like vaccine passports and whether or not they're constitutional? Well, I mean, the, the the wording of the Charter has some pretty big, broad and important concepts in it. And I've got to say, I was happy to see uh, people apparently carrying uh, complete copies of the Charter around, framed copies of it, uh, at some of these protests, which is, uh, I guess, good news for the uh, interest in the Charter. And people seem to have been sort of uh, looking at some of the general wording and protections and sort of ascribing all kinds of meanings to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um for example, some of the people who are arguing that uh, having a requirement uh, that a person be vaccinated before going into a uh, you know restaurant or some place have been arguing that that would somehow contravene Section Seven, which is a provision that provides for the uh, life, liberty, and security of the person, um, because those words are pretty broad and expansive. That's the sort of meaning I guess people have attached to it, yes. but. You know, there are a couple of things to be said about that. Um, first of all, there many of the words in the Charter, of course, have been subject to many years of judicial consideration. And the, the words don't mean anything you could uh, subscribe to them. For example, you know, Section 6 provides for every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, or leave Canada. Well, that does not mean that if you're sentenced to jail, you can just say, aha, I choose now to leave Canada. <laughs> I choose to Sarah. be deported, yes. Right. It's not anything that you can <laughs> choose to sort of fit within these words that they're going to, in fact, mean in a legal sense. And so that's the first thing to be said uh, about them. Uh, perhaps don't rely upon the uh, Facebook interpretation of what uh, you know constitutional provisions mean. And then the other thing to be said about it is that in Canada – we have Section 1 of the Charter, and Section 1 of the Charter says the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, right? And indeed, there are limits to all of these things, right? And that's the threshold that would be applied. Uh, and, you know, the, the rights in here are all very important, but they are not sort of unlimited in anything you might squeeze within the uh, the wording, right? Sort of the, you know, freedom of expression doesn't entitle you to, you know, engage in libel and slander, right? Or to, you know, scream out falsehoods in a theater, the classic example, right? Mm, yes. And so, you know, these things have meaning. It's not just anything that you might uh, think uh, that you could uh, fit in the wording is going to be constitutionally protected. Um Another miscellaneous thought I've had about all of this from a legal perspective, because there's been much talk of uh, enforcement and how that might occur, and the uh, Premier is talking about uh, 
uh, merchants being told to phone the police yeah, if somebody yeah. was trying to, you know, come in. One of the other alternatives, of course, would be to uh, privatize that enforcement uh, regime. We've, we've seen that in, a, I think, a, a pretty disappointing fashion in Texas recently, uh, where in, in an effort to try to ban abortion, what Texas has done is they've said, look, anyone is free to sue anyone who gets an abortion uh, or assists somebody in getting an abortion. And so they've tried to privatize that process. And that's, I think, at least in my view, a pretty sinister use of that approach. But you could readily imagine how with this kind of a regime, you could use a, a similar uh, process in, I think, a, a, a much better way. You could empower somebody to, for example, you could create a cause of action with statutory damages if somebody were to either fail to ensure that people coming in to fill in the blank, a restaurant or a, a bar or a you know, fitness facility uh, wasn't vaccinated so as to protect the other people there. Uh, you could uh, permit other people that were there to sue uh, the business owner uh, who permitted that kind of dangerous uh, activity. Uh, and then just empower people who were uh, endangered in that way to start actions and uh, sue for damages. Mm. Um, and so you could imagine a, you could have a legal regime that would permit uh, enforcement without necessarily uh, requiring the police to show up there, uh, and one which might be pretty effective, um, because really at the heart of all of this um, is the uh, concern uh, that people who are unvaccinated pose to others, yes. right? Yeah. And that's really at the heart of it. It's a matter of, look, uh, the evidence seems clear uh, that people who are unvaccinated pose a much greater danger uh, to other people around them. They're just yes. more likely to be spreading a potentially deadly disease to other people. Uh, and so, you know, that's really the context of somebody's analyzing, you know, is this a reasonable uh, limit? Uh, on somebody's uh, freedom to, you know, associate or do this or do that, it's going to be a, an assessment as to, uh, or part of that assessment is going to be uh, the desire to protect others from the danger that those people pose. Mm. Uh, and I must say that same analysis is going to apply even if you had somebody who had some legitimate medical reason, for example, not to be vaccinated. Let's say yes. their doctor said, look, this uh you have uh, your immunocompromised or there's something else that would prevent you from safely taking the vaccine. That's perfectly understandable if that's legitimate, but that does not translate to, well, then that person uh, shall be free to attend things which are entirely optional, like going to a bar or a restaurant or a, uh, you know, a concert or something, when their attendance in that way, unvaccinated, puts other people there at risk. Yes. And so, you know, it's, it's not a matter of being punitive or, or not uh, sort of understanding that uh, indeed there could be some people who do have uh, uh, a circumstance that would legitimately prevent them medically from uh, taking steps to keep themselves and others safe. But again, not as a punishment, but no. simply as a safety measure for the other people there. Look, I'm terribly sorry that that's the medical circumstance you have. You, you're not going to be able to protect yourself and others using the vaccine if that's so. Uh, but that doesn't translate to, well, then we must uh, impose that danger on other people who uh, want to be able to go to the restaurant or bar or movie or, you know, fitness class or whatever else it might be. 
because that's really the effect that it has. It's not simply a matter of trying to get people to do something to sensibly protect themselves, right? It's yeah. not a law like a, and I must say, we do even have those laws. It's like you have to put on your seatbelt yes, yeah. or put on Helmets. your helmet if yeah. you want to ride your bike or your motorcycle. Right? Precisely, yeah. And, you know, some of that's justified in our system, I think, on the basis that, look, we have a public health care system. And so if you decide to ride around without a motorcycle helmet and crack your head open, we're all going to be paying for that. Uh, or if you decide to drive around without a seatbelt on and get yourself seriously injured, we're all going to bear some, uh, you know, at least financial uh, implication of your reckless behavior. And so that's certainly one element of it. But this goes clearly one step beyond the helmets and seatbelts laws designed to protect the person and I suppose indirectly the public from bearing the financial cost of somebody's reckless decision. Uh, but this is a circumstance where if you're not taking these steps and you're in these closed quarters inside, you pose a risk to other people. Uh, and so that's usually the watchword of when we're going to intervene in people's uh, activity is when uh, your choices uh, put other people at risk. Uh, and so I suppose my the summary of it would be, uh, while I'm happy to see people uh, carrying around copies of the uh, Charter, uh, it is very unlikely uh, that there is going to be a successful constitutional argument uh, to allow people to make a choice that puts other people's health and life in jeopardy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm glad you've got the Charter, hang it up on the wall and read it. Uh, but it, it is uh, very unlikely uh, that there's going to be a, a judge who concludes that you're free to go and put other people in jeopardy uh, so that you can engage in some optional activity, right? Yes. Uh, there's just no need to go to a bar or a restaurant, um, right? You're free to go and buy food and stay home if that's what you're choosing to do. Indeed. But if you want, if you want to participate in society and be next to other people in sort of optional activities, uh, you're going to need to do so in a fashion that doesn't put people needlessly uh, at risk. And so I think the, the arguments about the uh, Charter and the right to do this really have uh, very little merit to them. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, will continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. We'll be right back. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers for Legally Speaking. And in any event, Michael, while litigation with respect to COVID-19 provisions is either underway or unavoidable at this point, as you've, I think, very articulately described, it's unlikely a judge would find them unconstitutional for the reasons you've given. But in any event, it's not healthcare workers, doctors or nurses, nor is it fast food workers who decide what these rules are. So any dispute that arises between a person and one of those a class of people would itself be ridiculous and futile because they're just following the rules like everybody else. That's exactly right. They, they have about as much control over this policy as the uh, RCMP officers do that are often forcing that uh, injunction about uh, old growth logging. Um, you're, you're just, uh, if that's where you're focusing your disagreement, you're pointed in the wrong direction. Right, the healthcare workers are doing their best to treat people. They don't decide what the uh, policy is, and uh, with respect to the other matter, the police don't decide what uh, what the law is or whether there should be an injunction or not. Uh, and so, getting angry with the uh, person charged with um, enforcing something is, uh, you know, sort of like getting very mad at the uh, jail guard for the fact that 
you know, they're there keeping somebody in custody with some uh, convicted of some offense that you don't agree with. Uh, you're just pointed in the wrong direction. And so, you know, I think uh, you're quite right. If there's to be uh, protests about these things, it's to be directed at the people who are making the decision, right? Which is yes. the provincial government, not the person at Burger King uh, who's asking you to put your mask on. Uh, that's uh, just uh, completely inappropriate. Next uh, case we're looking at, BC Court of Appeal allowing an appeal, also grants an annulment of a marriage, which can always complicate these matters. Yeah, this is, a, I think, a really interesting case because it expands the circumstances in which uh, an annulment can be granted, in my view at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and annulments used to be a, a more common thing before divorce was readily available, right? But uh, I, we seem to have seen an uptick in the number of people applying for these. Um, and the concept there, would if you get the annulment, it's like the marriage never happened, right? It's gone mm-hmm. away. Um, and so this particular case was brought by uh, uh, a woman, and I say, un- and also unopposed by uh, her uh, husband, uh, as it were. Uh, and the fact pattern was that uh, the couple uh, met uh, at uh, college, uh, they were both uh, Sikh by way of religion, mm-hmm. um, and they decided to uh, get married. And in fact, they had a civil ceremony. Uh, and they then began living in the same house together, uh, but they did not consummate the marriage. There were other people that were living in the house with them as friends. Um, and their explanation for that um, is that uh, based on their religious beliefs, they viewed it as not appropriate to live together unless they were married by way of the civil ceremony, Hmm. but they also were of the view that they shouldn't consummate the marriage until they had gone through a religious ceremony, which Hmm. they hadn't yet done. Interesting. And they had been living together for a period of time, and unfortunately, they started fighting. (laughs) And so... (laughs) As as people do. (laughs) That's right, as people do. So maybe a good test. So the relationship ended. It doesn't sound like that was... uh, sounded like they both agreed to the end of the relationship. And then there was this application for the annulment. Now, the challenge they had, they were unsuccessful uh, in chambers, like when they went to the B.C. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the reason they didn't succeed is that as a common law principle, it's not enough that you establish that the marriage wasn't consummated. That was common ground. You need to also establish that the marriage was not consummated because of a physical or psychological incapacity to consummate the marriage. It's not enough that people have just decided, hey, let's just wait. Um, That doesn't do it. And so the judge hearing the application for the the annulment denied it on the basis that, look, you, you just chose not to consummate the marriage for a variety of reasons, religious and family planning reasons and so on, and that's fine, but that doesn't meet the test for the annulment. And so off the case goes to the Court of Appeal. And so we have this brand new and I think quite interesting decision uh, that uh, analyzes why the couple chose not to consummate the marriage and found that that decision was based on sincerely held religious belief. Uh, And the Court of Appeal found that a sincerely held religious belief as a reason for not consummating the marriage was sufficient to establish an incapacity to consummate the marriage. Uh, And so on that basis, granted the annulment. And so what it means going forward is that if somebody can establish on a balance of probabilities uh, that a marriage was not consummated 
And that decision not to consummate it was based on a sincerely held religious belief uh, that can then form the basis uh, for uh, getting an annulment. And so it's an interesting case. It's one of those things sort of uh, one might not be uh, expecting in terms of uh, how religious beliefs interface with this concept of incapacity. Uh, And so in British Columbia, we've now slightly expanded the circumstance in which uh, an annulment might be granted. Uh, and so I thought that was a really interesting case people should be aware of. Absolutely. And we've got uh, about six and a half minutes left, so plenty of time. New COVID rules from the provincial court will allow either a person disputing a motor vehicle act ticket or a police officer who issued the ticket to now appear at trial via MS Teams. What's it like to appear in court uh, via either MS Teams or Zoom, Michael? Help people understand, because I, I think that um, not, not a lot of us have spent time in a courtroom, much less a virtual one. What's it like? Well, I've been doing a lot of it lately, so I can <laughs> tell you about that. Um, for the right kind of case or the right kind of witness, it works very well. And we've seen the use of uh, video remote attendances increase really substantially through COVID as courts have just made things work uh, in an effort to try to have courts function while keeping people safe. And so we have seen, for example, in the uh, world of criminal law, uh, things like um, sentencing hearings where nobody is seeking a jail sentence, right? Where everyone's agreed that it's going to be a fine or probation or something of that sort. Mm-hmm to allow those to occur entirely by MS Teams, where you'd have the judge on the screen, the Crown, defense, and you can have the uh, accused person attending by telephone or by video connection as well. And so for cases of that kind, it's worked extremely well. And we've also seen counsel using uh, remote connections much more frequently where possible for witnesses, right, where they're testifying police witnesses or other professional witnesses where having them in the courtroom isn't really necessary or advantageous. Um, so I think all that's been generally pretty positive. Um, the The change which occurred just yesterday was to expand the possibility for Motor Vehicle Act tickets uh, for there to be an application to allow now not only the person who got the ticket and is disputing it, but also the police officer, if they wish, uh, to make an application in advance. There's a form that has to be filled out and sent in for the uh, judicial justice who would be deciding the issue to decide whether it would be appropriate to allow them to testify uh, or, in the case of the person disputing the ticket, dispute their ticket uh, remotely using MS Teams. Um, And I think this is really good and an advancement, right? Having... You know, witnesses always testify in that fashion, I don't think would necessarily be appropriate, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes there's just a need to have the person present for cross-examination or other purposes. But, you know, there should be a um, dispute uh, resolution mechanism that's sort of fitting the nature of the dispute, right? It's a ticket which is being disputed, and I think this is a positive approach to it. I would also say this, right? Disputes of this kind, like this person disputing their speeding ticket, for example. Yes. In in my view, is really important because for most people, that is going to be one of the only interactions they have with the justice system. That's it, right? Most people aren't going to be charged with a crime. Most people aren't going to happily be engaged in civil litigation. For most people, that's it. Uh, And so 
I do think it is very important that we have a system uh, which is fair and people come away from it thinking, hey, that was fair. I was treated appropriately. I had a chance to be heard. I had a chance to ask questions of the other side. The person deciding it seemed impartial because the for many people, these are going to be people who do wind up as, you know, jurors down the road or witnesses in serious cases, potentially. And the impression left by the, um, you know, provincial court or the criminal justice system generally, mm-hmm. uh, when dealing with somebody's small claims fence dispute or the, you know, speeding ticket, they don't think they were issued uh, properly, really matters. Because for many people, that's going to form their entire impression of the system. And so... Um, I do think it's important that we continue to have this sort of a, a you know, proper process in place for people to dispute those tickets and have a trial and an independent person deciding it. And all of that is very important. Um, and I think this change, that's to say allowing either side to ask to appear by video, um, both meets that objective and, and also it makes the system, uh, I think, more efficient and, and would allow people to legitimately contest things in in a fashion that doesn't mean, well, look, if you want to contest your speeding ticket, you'll have to take the entire day off work, uh, right, to be down there doing that, right? This would make the system more accessible to people, right, who might have, you know, let's say you've got a speeding ticket in, you know, uh, some other part of the province without saying, look, you've got to drive back to, you know, someplace a thousand kilometers away if you wish to dispute it, making it a practical impossibility, this is going to allow people to uh, dispute tickets like that, to do it more efficiently with less time off work, and allowing the police to apply to do it uh, as well, uh, I think is going to add efficiency there. Right? You have police officers who wind up being transferred to other jurisdictions, uh, RCMP officers moved across the country, that kind of thing. Yes. And so uh, not only is that it, it's clearly motivated by COVID, uh, but... I think it's one of those COVID-motivated uh, changes to the system that uh, hopefully sticks around because it has the potential to make things more fair, uh, add efficiency, uh, and uh, all at the same time uh, continuing to have a, a meaningful process for people to dispute these things so that they don't feel like uh, they're left without a, a fair process. So that change yesterday, I think, is a positive one, and people should be aware of it. If you're disputing a ticket, uh, you can go online if you wish to uh, dispute the ticket and do it by Microsoft Teams, fill out the form in a timely fashion uh, and ask for permission to do it. And that may be uh, perfectly permitted. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. I do so enjoy these segments every week, Michael, until next time. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. Bye now.